Welcome to the Front Office Exchange, where we take a look at the careers of executives and rising stars within the sports business. Now, here's your host, Jake Failing. This is episode 11 of the Front Office Exchange podcast, and today we'll hear from Sherry Kemp, commissioner of the National Pro Fast Pitch Softball League and current analyst for ESPN softball coverage. Uh, You'll hear right away, Sherry's energy and passion was evident right out of the gate. Uh, She was a lot of fun to talk to, uh, and we got in there. She was, again, very passionate about uh, her sport and what she's doing uh, today to to grow the game. She's led NPF since 2007, and we discussed her daily fight to grow media exposure and sponsorship opportunities for her league and her players. Uh, And as a TV sports analyst herself, however... She also acknowledges that there's a fine line that exists in this process. Uh, She's an entrepreneur. Uh, She started a softball training facility uh, right after her time uh, on the field as a player. She also had a stint with Team USA. Over the course of our conversation, we talked uh, both about that on and off the field experience, and then twofold. One, what she looks for in her employees at NPF uh, as a small uh, league. They've got to wear many hats there. Uh, But then also for uh, people that are looking to get into the industry, either former players that are looking to kind of replicate what Sherry's done as an analyst or someone even coming right out of school uh, who's looking for a job in sports television. So without further ado, National Pro Fast Pitch League Commissioner Sherry Kempf. Sherry Kemp, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get in to your career, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is you do now? I know you're obviously uh, the commissioner of NPF and you've uh, worked in, in media as well over the years. So if you could just give us uh, an update on what you're doing now uh, and what a, uh, a day-to-day looks like for you at this point, if that's even possible. Yeah, yes, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give it a shot. Uh, first of all, as commissioner of the National Pro Fast Pitch League, uh, I do a little bit of everything. So uh, my primary focuses are expansion, um, sponsorship, uh, from really a hard push on non-endemic, so corporate America, non-suppliers, um, non-manufacturers in our industry. And then always um, also concerned with expanding and maintaining our overall media coverage. And that has included, uh, over the past five years, it's included, included national television. Uh, the past three years, we've been a fairly comprehensive package with CBS Sports Network, which we're real happy about, over 20 uh, live events each year. And then last year, we also uh, launched our own uh, exclusive digital platform, which we call NPF TV, but uh, that carried every single uh, non-televised game, which was about 128 games of the regular season, and then some extras, and we we expect to expand that. So from uh, National Pro Fast Fish, a little bit of everything, it's still women's professional sports, so uh, there are a lot of hats to wear. It's a small staff. Uh, and then you mentioned uh, my media coverage. I, I still feel uh, very fortunate to be involved with uh, the coverage of college softball as a, as a color commentator. I've been doing that for 15 years. I've uh, covered um, the last 10 years with ESPN, covered the NCAA extensively, including 
the Women's College World Series. So that's a lot of fun. That's the fun part about what I get to do, um, especially in the spring from about March till the 1st of June. Sure. Now, I always wonder how people juggle that. I'm sure others do as well. So you've obviously got your day-to-day uh, National Pro Fast Pitch, but you talk about the media as the fun part. So how do you work that in? What does that scheduling look like for you? I mean, is that something where, obviously, you're the commissioner, so you can, uh, you've got a little bit more leeway than maybe someone else, but uh, you know, is that something where you ask for your calendar in advance and you try to sync it up with events that you might have going on and things like that? You know, is it tough to balance both of those? Yes, I think it's a little bit tough to balance both of them, and uh, but I but it's doable, and because it's something that there is uh, still a really positive synergy, and there is a positive aspect in me being involved in, in the media side of college sports uh, as a commissioner uh, still, and being that involved with it is uh, a really I think everyone sees that as an upside. But you know what? It's it's extra hours, and it's a good point that you, you say that because I'll tell you something. It's, as far as I'm concerned, to be a good color analyst, you should sound like and seem like uh, you see these teams every day, and that's often not the case. You know, typically if I get a team two or three times during the regular season, I'm high-fiving myself. You know, that's, that's great, and it's helpful. But that's not what you get all the time. I uh, predominantly cover the SEC, but still, even even with that, if you look at 10 or 12 weekends and you know 13 teams involved, you you know you certainly can can get to a situation where you're covering new two new teams every single week. So it's studying. It's you know we're very fortunate. There are amazing media relations people with these colleges and they hand you a lot of information in in a way that's easy to absorb uh, but I, I have joked and and but there's a lot of truth to it and told people that i've studied i study harder for to cover college softball and sound casual on the air uh, than i did for a lot of my uh college <laughs> classes so i might not I maybe shouldn't admit that out loud, but I, there is a lot to it, and uh, and it isn't just as easy as, as showing up. So, but it is typically extra hours and late nights that I spend on prepping for the college games. I think your old professors forgive you by now. There's there's like a statute of limitations. <laughs> I think you're okay. I hope so. Yeah. So obviously you were a player, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, you got into starting your own. Um, instruction academy uh training group there then you get into television how did uh national pro fast pitch how did that come about how were you recruited to that position i actually covered the league first as a color commentator for espn back in 2005 2006 i did a package uh i did uh in 2006 with espn before that, I actually um, covered a team that doesn't exist anymore, but started in 2004, the New York, New Jersey Juggernaut. I cu- they had a, a fairly uh, decent package with the Yes Network, and I was the color commentator on about 10 games for them. They were playing in Montclair, New Jersey. So that's where I became familiar with the National Pro Fastest League, which started in 2004. And I, you know, 
I guess if there's one thing I am, it's it's outspoken. Uh, I did I didn't hesitate to give my opinions on the league, even to the owners and to people like that, and never thought, you know, wasn't thinking about a future in it, but just hey, this is what I'm seeing. I'm spending four hours with your team and pregame and a little postgame, and this is what I'm seeing in your league. And uh, there was a decision on their behalf. Uh, right around uh, to the end of 2006, the beginning of 2007, to add the position of commissioner, which they had not done. They were they had a president, but they were also really um, uh, running the organization and the league from within. So team owners had certain responsibilities. They did not have uh, really a neutral party from the outside uh, that that took on league responsibility. So they they made a big change. Uh, initially, they told me it would be about two to three hours a week uh, being commissioner, and I think they just thought I would uh, sort of navigate th through and um, maybe show some direction. But I think about that conversation and laugh now uh, to know the, the, t the time that we all spend in the league. So. Yeah, obviously it's more than than a couple hours. But so, what is it now? I mean, it, it, that is the. Does that dominate most of your time? Yes, yes. There's no, there's no question. And to think about, you know, a lot of people when the championship is over, they'll say, "So, what do you do now?" And really, as I love we that question. September, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I sort of smile to myself, but you know, people people don't understand right. the the entire concept, but. You know, as we head into September, that's a big time for us. It's when our television contract comes up. It's when that's when you should be, you know, identifying uh, those non-endemic, those new corporate partners for the for the next year, all of your events. And it's also our deadline is uh, September 30th for really securing uh, candidates for expansion and trying to get them locked down and get them prepared for the following season. So. You know, there's. Um, it's just like anything. You know, if if you if you go to a restaurant, you sit down and eat, and a lot of times you never give any thought to how the dishes get cleaned and how the food gets cooked and and what time somebody's getting there in the morning or leaving at night. And so, you know, that that certainly comes with the territory. But uh, especially with small staffs, uh, it, it is. Uh, you know, everybody is wearing multiple hats and and doing a lot. And we also rely, especially when we get to our special events of the draft and the championship, um, we rely a lot on on a good core base of volunteers. Sure. Now, when you look at uh, former athletes that get into media. So let's kind of shift it back uh, to your, your broadcast career uh, that's running concurrently. So you look at athletes, they finish their playing career, um, and then they get into TV. You see that all the time with the NFL and the NBA, Major League Baseball, the, these big organizations. There's fewer opportunities for former athletes to do that in a sport like softball. Now, the coverage is, is, has grown immensely over the years. But you've got one of those few roles. So, uh, you know, theoretically, we've got some former athletes that are looking to get into TV or sports business that listen to this podcast. So, talk a little bit about how you positioned yourself, how you got your name out there, and got one of those coveted softball broadcasting roles with uh, these leading networks. You know, I, I'm just going to tell you, I was very fortunate. I, I feel like I was lucky then, and I feel like I'm lucky now to, to still have an opportunity 
to, you know, for me, as far as I'm concerned, uh, my favorite part of being a color analyst is to glorify the sport and glorify the athletes and really, you know, really help people understand how extraordinary these women are. When they make a play look easy, how spectacular it is and, and you know, maybe how difficult it is to, to weave your way through as a pitcher a lineup time after time and, and continue to be successful. So I think that uh, I, I definitely consider myself lucky. I got in in 1990, actually, well, 2000, right, right at uh, the end of the 1990s, a little bit radio, some, a few things like that, and then really 2000, 2001, I was asked to do the, the uh, championship of Conference USA. I was asked by Sandy Pearsall, who's the co who was then the coach of Louisville. She's, she's the coach of Louisville right now. And she said, you, you know, we're looking for a, a person to do color commentary our conference is producing this championship, and, uh, you know, Sandy knows that I, you know, don't have a problem talking, so I said the <laughs> problem would be to get me to shut up, but, uh, but at any rate, I did it. I loved it. I had no idea what I was doing. They said, we're going to shoot an open. I had no idea what the open was. I didn't even really realize that we were doing it live, so uh, zero training, and timing, and I've certainly had a lot of on-the-job and continue to have a lot of on-the-job training. But I, I did that. I got a few games with the SEC. I actually got the Fox package, um, which was five games at that time, including the championship game. And uh, that was really before the ESPN-SEC relationship. I, I got the Cox coverage of LSU, so they carried about eight home games of LSU every year, and then they'd you know, maybe throw in a Texas A&M matchup, and so I was doing that and got a call from ESPN when they started to take on a few more uh, games, but they still did not have this comprehensive SEC package, and so I sort of got my foot in the door there. Michelle Smith was still was not doing television. She was in Japan still playing ball. And, uh, and I think I was just one of the people uh, that had a little bit of experience, and they had heard me and, and liked me and offered me an opportunity. And that sense has grown to be, you know, now I've, uh, I hope that I continue to be uh, the, the in-studio analyst during the Women's College World Series and, and be able to cover the tournament. So uh, I, I really think mine is good fortune. When you talk about what, what can – women, young women now that want in the industry, what can they do? Uh, I always tell them, and I, I love to talk to them. I think it's so interesting. When I first got into broadcasting, you'd see in the student bios, forensic science. And I used to laugh at that. I wanted to be a forensic scientist because 20 years ago, nobody was putting they wanted to be a forensic science scientist. But you would see all this stuff on television, all these fun shows. And so that became the popular thing. Now you see, I want to be a sideline reporter. I want to be a color commentator. You, you never saw that before because it didn't even exist. Those opportunities didn't even exist for women. So I love to talk to them. But the thing that I, I think is important for young people to understand, I don't care if you want on the play-by-play -play side, if you want to produce, direct, do graphics, um, one thing that's important to understand is there are a lot of opportunities, but you don't go 
you don't zoom right to the top and be a million bucks. It's a, it's a learning process just like it is with everything. And I don't care if you were the best player in the, of the year uh, in softball. I think you still, TV is different. And now it's not about you. It's about everybody else. It's about who's on TV right now. And, uh, you know, it's about figuring out and sort of what I said before, what are the, what are, what do we want to talk about? What's the timing? How we want people at home to enjoy this broadcast. We don't want to talk their ears off. We want them to be, feel like they're involved and feel the celebrations. And there's a way to do that. There's techniques. So there's a lot to learn. And I see young people that are willing to hustle. They're willing to be the, the stage manager or stand in the back of the booth uh, while while people are the pros are doing it. You know whether that's basketball, football, and and that's the way you learn. They're willing to be the runner. They're willing to do the non-glamorous jobs. Pull some cable. Uh, help set up the the whole the whole production. You learn by doing that, and that's what I tell students and young people. Get in. You know, I, I covered LSU for nothing for a couple of years at least, and for very little after that. That package just didn't pay a lot. But you know what I knew? I was grateful for my opportunity to be on air. So a lot of these young people now, even with the, the schools, uh, SEC schools, I, I, I know I say it a lot, but I, I'm blown away by the opportunities that undergraduate students are getting in broadcasting. And some of them have been on air. By the time they graduate, they've been on air more than I've been on air in a 15-year career. So that's opportunity. But with that, you have a lot of people coming out. So what makes the difference in you and everybody else? Hustle, going over the top, taking initiative, being creative, taking advantage of opportunities, making sure that uh, you don't think anything's beneath you, uh, especially when you're starting. And, and that you are trying to immerse yourself, uh, in, in every aspect. You know, you, everybody wants to be, a, a lot of people want to be on air, right? A lot of people want to be on air, but there's a lot to putting out a television production. Uh, there's some incredible, uh, creative human beings, um, spectacular, people with, I think, specific skills of being able to uh, have a great vision in your directors and, and uh, producers, and then just people who really add a lot to the broadcast that you would never know. The graphics people that are ready, the replay guys that are tremendous, that put together packages and are all, always have your always have what you're looking for. So there's a lot of aspects in television that I, I hope young people realize besides on air as well. Sure. Now let's go back to your undergraduate experience. You were star pitcher for Missouri Western State, uh, and then spin it forward. From there, for me, uh, you wore uh, the USA across your chest. Uh, it looks like in 1992. Um, so, you know, you, you reached the top there, the, the pinnacle. You played for the national team. Um, once that career finishes, did you know all along that you wanted to start a, a training center, an academy of sorts, um, to continue to work in the game, to give back to the game? Was that a plan? Uh, because that's obviously been a very successful uh, career for you as well? So the answer is no, not at all. I, I, when I was in college and people said, are you going to coach? I, I almost took offense to that. 
I was an English major. I had a communications emphasis. I really wanted to be a writer. I still believe at my core I am a writer. Uh, I I wanted to uh, write screenplays, write movies, and get into that entire uh, genre of, uh, of creativity and, and that industry. So, uh, no, I, I, this was not my vision for myself. Uh, I think there was... Uh, you, you know, you always look back at those moments when things, uh, you took a turn here or there. Uh, when I originally had planned to go to Kansas, and I was going to major in broadcasting. And I went over there for about three days and uh, went back home and played, uh, ended up playing softball and basketball. We, we won the first national championship and, and still the only national championship at Missouri Western. And um, it sort of went from there. There was not that broadcasting opportunity to major, so I took the closest thing I could, took an, uh, an English with a communications emphasis. And after that, I actually still tried to get into film school, into grad school for film school, uh, and my undergraduate degree really didn't lend itself to that. It, uh, I, could get, I could do undergraduate again and get another uh, undergraduate degree in film, but, they, but I could not get in any graduate programs. So I think uh, I was still playing softball, still playing a high level, got to play for, you know, the, the sort of the pinnacle of, of softball when I was a, a child and an adolescent was the Ray Bestis Raycats. They were well known. They were the most successful dynasty of any sport. And uh, I got to uh, play for them as a, as a young woman. And so I was doing all of that, and I think it, it just, I ended up, um, maybe if I, if I examine it, I may have stayed in something that was comfortable for me and something that seemed to uh, continue to provide opportunities for me and something where people knew me and I had a network. And so uh, it was sort of one thing after another. Uh, I did a little college coaching I uh, opened the training facility. The training facility really just exploded. But honestly, when I opened it, it was a means to allow me to continue to play softball. I, w I wanted to keep playing, and I needed to have a job and, and uh, you know, support myself and make a living in a way that would still allow me to, to shut down for three months and go play softball. Right. So I obviously have a, a unique understanding of the baseball and softball journey in the Olympic Games world. Uh, and, and I think hopefully by now a lot of our listeners do as well. One of the questions I ask guests is, you know, talk about turning points in your career. Uh, you know, what what have you done in the face of adversity here, there, etc.? You know, for you, you go to the National um, Pro Fast Pitch League right around the time that softball and baseball are removed from the Olympic Games or essentially in that in that time frame. So uh, how did that play into, you know, the league was brand new, still brand new at that point. Uh, how has that, you know, the exit from the games, now the return, the journey there in between, how did that affect the league positively, negatively? And then for you as the leader of the organization, you know, what role did you play in that whole thing? Well, 
when I became commissioner in 2007, I was coming off. I had been a national player, as a national team member, as you said before, and I was also coming off a four-year stint. I was right in the middle of a four-year stint from 2004 to 2008 of being in the national team coaching pool. That was a, that was a ten-member pool of coaches. My assignment was Junior Olympics. I was a pitching coach on the Junior Olympic team, and I was at all U.S. team training camps. So I was right in the middle of USA softball still. And I knew, I remember sitting down with Ron Radaganda, and I was so excited about becoming the commissioner and, you know, so excited about talking to him, about working together. And and I remember him saying, you know, in just, sadness really it wasn't for sure yet but he was he knew it and he said sherry we're we're not going to make it you know we're we're not going to this is this is coming out and uh you know this is essentially the end of it and i said uh, he said we're going to lose our funding and i said listen this is how we can make this work and so i was just real excited about the professional side the npf being and, and the NPF had a little bit of a sketchy reputation at that time. It was, uh, when I came in as commissioner, it, it had a reputation of, it was just sort of a party platform. In fact, Coach Kendrea didn't even like his players to be in the NPF because the, it, it was so, it was taken, uh, not seriously. And it was kind of a party spot for the players. And he really felt like when they went to the NPF, they almost got out of shape. For, for being national team players. Hmm. So I said, hey, we're going to turn this around. We're going uh, we're gonna to balance out the schedule of the league. Let's work together. Let's make the league the, the revenue arm. And, uh, and, and, let's, and we'll, we'll let the players go and, and become, you know, when, when you need to compete. And that way we'll continue to stay really competitive right where we should be. And so I was really excited about all that. I, I, I don't know that I thought it would get back in the Olympics this quickly, to be honest with you. Uh, I thought it could stay out a, a long time. You saw women's tennis come out and stay out for years and years and years. So I thought we might be in, in that position. But at any rate, I thought that the two could exist. I mean, I was a national team member before it was in the Olympics. So national team is still important. USA softball, you're still going to have your world championships. So I was really excited about all of that. That is not uh, how it turned out. We did not work uh, together. We weren't able to, to do much with USA Softball, unfortunately. But I still think that that's, that's a place that we, we should be. And I think that the two should work together. When you're trying to build something, you, you have to be united. That's, history will tell you that in every single aspect. Uh, and so I think uh, that's something that certainly is still a priority for us uh, to work hand-in-hand with USA Softball and to have a good, um, good synergy between the two because no one, I don't think anybody in the world in this sport that has any knowledge would question that the National Pro Fast Pitch League is the highest level of competition that exists. And, you know, we're seeing, we're going to see even more foreign players. We've had a lot of international players in the league. We'll see even more uh, because I think they realize 
They need, you know, iron sharpens iron. They need to be in this league uh, to continue to, to hone their skills and improve their skills at 25 and 27 years old. Um, so I think uh, for me to get back to your original question, I think it was just, it was optimism. I, I was not a downer for me that it had come out of the Olympics. I was disappointed as a human and as a softball fan. But for me, I thought, um, I, I have always believed that professional softball should exist in this country and that you certainly have the, if you want to call it, it's kind of hard to call college softball feeder program, but it, it still would be that for, um, for the professional level. And all of that is in place. So uh, our, our professional level um, should exist and it should be strong. So what's next for NPF, and what do you do to try to help it keep or gain relevancy in you know what's a crowded marketplace? Next is security. Next is just really getting the sport secure as a legitimate career option for these women. We've got to stop having them say to their owners, I've got to go get a real job. We've got to have them be able to make a career because they are extraordinarily talented. The, the, the crux in all of that is corporate America. And it is the sentiment that still exists in this country that corporate America has not bought in, literally and figuratively, to women's professional sports. So they, they will still opt out. And, and, this, and these are scenarios that are, that are true. They will still take a no-name, third or fourth level mixed martial, mixed martial arts um, that happens at the Hard Rock in Vegas to, our, to an entire summer package of NPF or to the NPF draft 90-minute live special or to the NPF championship. And when you measure, when you truly measure those out, when you look at ratings, when you look at exposure, when you look at the demographics of the audience, the overall reach, the opportunities, the assets that you have, there's no comparison. So we're getting beat on, on a level of gender only and of men's professional sports versus women's professional sports. So. I believe that we are on our, our CBS sports package. We're on there in the summer with um, um, Pro Bowl writing, and we're on there with World's Strongest Man, and we get a lot of windows. We get a lot of opportunities. In 2015, we delivered 22 live events. Those 22 live events, CBS Sports Network re-aired 35 times. So. We don't have a rating. They, they've not released, they have been an unrated network to this point. So we don't get to see the number. But if you turn on National Pro Fastage, a season-long package of 22, 25, whatever it is, games, there is not a single non-endemic partner in our broadcast because not a single non-endemic partner exists with us. Turn on Pro Bowl Writing. And look at the non-endemic partners. It's everywhere you look. Turn on World's Strongest Man and look at the non-endemic partners. They have them. I don't think they do what we do. I don't, I don't have any proof of that, but 
but I'm, I'm basing it on rears and I'm basing it on windows in general, but still corporate America is opting for those scenarios. And I, I'm not against either one of them. I'm just saying they, that corporate America will still opt for a, you know, the 87th college football bowl game where there's 10 people sitting in the stands and nobody watching and schools that people are saying, oh, where's that? They'll still opt for that over the NPF championship or over a whole season where you could have the Monday night game of the week and have your name all over the place on the field, on the uniform, on the title, everything. So it is definitely, you know, when I first took this spot, I thought it was that we just hadn't reached them. And I'm telling you now that I will, I am a firm believer. It's not about reaching them. It's about their mindset changing. It's about them thinking it's important. Right. So you've got, you're in an interesting position. So you're leading this group. You're you're fighting to um, educate them basically on what you just walked through. But you're also talent on a lot of these networks. So you've got a platform that a lot of salespeople in organizations like NPF don't have. Are you able to leverage that platform or is that a fine line for you? It's a fine line. Yeah. It's a fine line because when I'm on air, it's to cover college softball. And that's an NCAA package. And that and, and as I said before, for me, when I'm on air, I have two teams for two hours or three hours of time. And it is all about them. It is all about those young women and it's about those coaches and so for me, I do think it is important to talk about this person was drafted first overall. I think that's part of her bio, just like it is part of her bio that she's a three-time All-American. Um, and I think those things should be mentioned. And I think sometimes we could do better at that. Um, but it certainly should not turn into, I'm a, I'm a firm believer of that with athletes and everything else. I, I don't think it should ever turn into my personal platform or, um, I don't think that I should come off as opportunistic just looking for the window to say the word NPF in a, in a college broadcast. Right. Um, you know, so, so it, it definitely is a fine line. And I try to, I would tell you personally, I, I have my own convictions about uh, what I've just said. And then professionally, uh, you know, I, I try to be very respectful of ESPN and the NCAA in in knowing, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm covering at that moment. Got it. So uh, do you see progress being made? On the non-endemic level? No, no, none. I think, um, you know, I, we, we come to work every day and we try to, um, you know, make sure that corporate America understands the assets that we have available. And I was talking to a, uh, an agency yesterday and they said well what you know tell us what you can and they were sort of given some examples what can somebody have on the draft and I said you know what guys I, I'll tell I'll give you specifics and you can ask me anything you want but what I'm telling you is anything anything I've got commercial inventory I've got title I've got uh, an, an in-game feature the uh, in-game element in event element when it comes to the draft I've got stage markings, I've got press releases, I've got backdrops, I can put it on the shirt, the podium, anything you want, everything can be branded. That's what what we have. 
So you can't say something that's wrong because right now we have it all and that is available for, uh, for a, a partner. So right. I just think, um, again, you see it a little bit when you talk about team sports, you see it a little bit around, see it with the WNBA, but you have to realize that the WNBA is an ESPN property and the WNBA has successfully uh, gotten the blessing of the NBA. That's, that's the whole, that was the whole start for them. Right. And, you know, that's, that could be a difference maker for us too, for Major League Baseball to put their arm around us in the daylight. So, you know, what do you look for as a leader? Let's switch gears a little bit. You know, I know you've got a small team there. You're all wearing many hats. Um, but you've got these teams um, spread out among, you know, six different cities. So do you hire volunteers? Are there teams on the ground that you essentially license these teams out to in terms of operations and things like that? Is it, is it like a minor league baseball um, type of feel where, you know, there's a small staff leading minor league baseball, but then each team uh, is run by a GM and so on. Um, I guess that's one part of the question. Then two, what do you look for in your team um, among the, you know, the, the four or five that I see there as you, continue to grow out the league? So the teams, to answer your first question, the teams are franchises. So they are operated independently. They operate under their franchise agreement and the policies and procedures of the league. So there are, there are things that they have to, there are rules and, and regulations and policies that they have to abide by and follow along with. But they, the, as far as, you know, who their general manager is, um, you know, their day-to-day, that's really uh, up, to, up to them um, to, to be able to manage and operate their team. Um, I think uh, from, from my standpoint, what do I look for? Anytime that you are, uh, there's no question we're short-staffed. And anytime you're short-staffed, you need people who have, um, can do a lot, can multitask, who have a lot of ability uh, across different platforms who will take on something that they know nothing about. Um, you know, Galen Wilson is also in, in our league office every single day, and, you know, she, she does ticketing for our uh, championship, and she's overseeing ticketing for our draft. And that's, you know, she's not a ticketing expert. She's, you know, she's, she came in with no knowledge of that. You have to educate yourself. Right. You know, she oversees our website. And again, was, you know, not, if you were just, if you were in a perfect world, you'd go out and hire, uh, the best person that you could, um, in, in digital media. Or, you know, we launched the digital, uh, platform of NTF TV. We didn't add a person. So we, you know, it's us. It's us that's, that's uh, generating the content, monitoring the content, taking the calls, taking the emails. If, the, if it doesn't come up, if it's, uh, you know, if there's a complaint, if there's a, uh, you know, whatever it is. So I think that you have to, it can't be, it has to be someone that's uh, comfortable and willing to go outside what they know. And I think you have to be creative, you have to be willing to put in extra hours because that's all this is. It's it's all the time, and right. it's not in a conventional box of this is when I go to work and this is when I go home. So I think those are all 
important things. And I'll tell you, I love creativity and I love initiative. And I, that is what I, I can't always get those people <laughs> to, to be on our staff, but right, I'll tell you, right. that's what catches my eye. And that's what catches my eye as you go back, even when you asked me the question about, you know, the, getting in the industry, getting in the broadcast industry, that's what catches my eye. That, that stage manager who's 22 years old and who is not, you know, splitting atoms, she's not the one that's, you know, putting, she's not engineering the truck, she's not doing anything extremely complicated, but she's doing her job in an extraordinary way. She's, she has everything ready. She's thinking ahead. She, you know, those kind of things that I think, um, you know, I think that's always, uh, to me, to make a, to make a uh, comparison to competition, it's hustle. You know, right. it's, it's hustle. Now, what about for you personally? Uh, you, you were a player. You started your training center. Uh, and now you're in this leadership position within NPF. Uh, then you've also got to brand yourself and position yourself as a journalist. So you talk about education, continuing education. What has that looked like for you over the years? Have you leaned on a couple of other executives in the space uh, to help hone your craft there? Or you know, is it you know, reading, podcasts, social media, things like that that you're following? Uh, anything that you'd like to share in either of those buckets, so to speak, that have helped you grow? I think a little bit of both. I think um, I wish that I had a little bit more of a, an influence from mentors um, and, and in a personal way, more of a, uh, I do have allies and I do have people who, whose opinions I respect, um, but, I, but I don't think just sheerly and purely in a mentor uh, student relationship. So I think, uh, I think that's something that I will always try to, as a professional, take a little bit more time and try to recognize when, when somebody does need that, just because that's, you know, that's human nature when it's something you've looked for. Um, so I, I think for me, I think that's important, uh, to have somebody who's been there and to have somebody who gets what you're talking about. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of people can empathize and sympathize and uh, rationalize through a conversation, but maybe they've never been there, and that that makes it a little more complicated. So, um, or a little less, I guess, thorough uh, when you're getting advice. But I'll tell you that I have very broad. I've never put myself in a box, even when with the training facility. For me, it was all about learning. And in, and in that regard, I got to be around some amazing people. Uh, Glenn Fleissig with the American Sports Medicine Institute, who, who helped me so much with the knowledge that I ended up putting in the book that I wrote of the softball pitching edge. Um, you know, it wasn't about how did I pitch. It was about how should we pitch. And, the, you know, the folks at the American Sports Medicine Institute new human movement to the nth degree. They were teaching people to walk again, and they were also measuring how's the best way to throw a baseball. So it was a, it was a cool environment to be in, uh, and it was an eye-opening involvement for me. So 
my time at Club K was really about the challenge of building the business, which I loved just as much as I loved teaching pitching. And it was about reaching masses, uh, both students, both young athletes, and eventually, as soon as I got a little confidence in it, about reaching teachers and sharing, you know, the people that were going to impact young people's lives all across the country and sometimes outside the country, arming them with the same information that I was lucky enough to get. So for me, it's always been uh, about when, even with Club K, it was about building the business and the challenge of that. That was the competition for me. How many people can we reach? How good can we make them? How successful can they be? And then I've taken that same approach with the league. Uh, it's just um, as far as building the league, where can it be? Why, why can't we get this where it should be? Why can't we get this to take its rightful place? How are we going to do that? It's entertaining. It's proven that. At the college level, softball's outrating baseball. Over 2 million people watched the finals last year. It's, that's consistent. It's setting records. So we know that people will watch it. We know that people are entertained by it. We should be able to take it to the next level of player involvement and all of that. So how are we going to get there? And I think those are our our challenges. I think for me, uh, I like to read a little bit of everything. Uh, I'm I'm reading Ashley Judd's book right now, All That Is Bitter and Sweet, <laughs> and loving it, loving it, learning about the exploitation of women across the world, and you know how to make a difference, and and some simple concepts in that that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought about. In, in really fighting that. So I really like anything, and I'll tell you something about what you said. Do I read? Do I follow? Do I? I try to do a little bit of everything, but I will tell you that I think I am more balanced and happier and more, I guess, uh, turned on when I am reading something that is uh, similar to this. Like, you know, not softball specific, uh, but really about, I, I like to read about people and the experiences that they've had because, you know, they, they have succeeded and they've failed in there. And if you're paying attention, uh, you can kind of figure out why and you can also relate it to, to what you're doing at the moment. Sure. No, you're right. So uh, player, trainer, author, commissioner, on-air personality, I think you've covered everything under the fast pitch umbrella. Uh, is there is there anything else out there? Any other uh, space that you feel like that you're trying to tackle? Is there like a like a softball social media site or something like that that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, I ha and I haven't umpired, and I just want to say for the record, I have no desire. Uh, I won't Good. be doing okay. that. <laughs> Good. No, well, thank you for clearing that up on the show. No, but seriously, I uh, I appreciate you being very candid and open, uh, talking about your career and then also what you're working on there at NPF, the challenges that you're facing. Uh, but uh, it sounds like having someone like you with your energy and passion that just it's very clear it comes out immediately uh, that they're in the best possible position they could be in. Uh, with you leading the charge. So I wish you the best of luck, continued success, and thank you again, Sherry, for joining the podcast.
Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and you can tell I love to talk. So thank you so much for, for having me on. I, I truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Front Office Exchange, where you hear about the careers of some of the leading executives in sports business. Visit us at frontofficeexchange.com, on Facebook, at Front Office Exchange, and on Twitter, at Front Office EXCH, to access past episodes, show notes, and much, much more. 